0: Friends, I want to invite you now, if you have a Bible, to take it and turn it to Philippians chapter one. Uh, this this morning, we're going to be looking at just a few verses from Philippians chapter one. We're going to be in verses nine to eleven, which give us a window into Paul's prayer life for this church that he helped to found. That's where we're going to be. And as you're turning over to that part of Philippians, I want to take just a minute and tell you about something that we emailed you about earlier this week. Um, a, a new initiative that we are are hoping will provide us with a little bit of a bridge between where we are now when the only thing we can do is meet for worship on Sunday mornings and the time when we're able to burn all these masks and gather together without any kind of fear, without any kind of restrictions and do Sunday school classes again because we're missing that element in our church's life together as a way to try to help us bridge that gap and as a a way of, of sort of capturing this moment in the life of our church, a moment of transition uh, we thought it would be helpful to read a book together. Even if we're not gonna be able to meet and talk about it face-to-face, to still all be reading the same thing and then to provide some resources for, uh, for for feeding into the conversations that we hope you guys will have with one another. And the book that we've chosen to read is a book called The Compelling Community. One we've chosen because it's one of our favorite descriptions of what a healthy church looks like. It, the, the subtitle of the book is a, a Community Where God's Power Makes a Church Attractive. We want our church to be known for a kind of inexplicable life where people will look at it and not really understand where this life is coming from, where the the, the ties that these people have uh, are formed. There's a lot of ways to build a thriving organization. I mean, just look at the successful businesses out there. Look at the Fortune 500. What you'll find is like really good products, really good customer service, maybe really cutting edge marketing you'll find techniques that we know work if you wanna build an organization that's thriving and healthy. But when, you're, when your organization is thriving and healthy because you came up with a great product, because your customer service is just really top notch, or because your marketing is, you know, is, is innovative and slick, then, then what gets the credit for the, for the health of your organization? When people look at it, what do they chalk that up to? To you and the product you created, to you and the customer service you offered, to your ingenuity in marketing your product the way that you have. And who gets the glory for that? You do. Friends, what we want in our congregation is a a life together that can't be explained by us. So that when people look at what's going on here, they don't glorify us, they glorify God. They kind of scratch their heads and think, something supernatural is happening here amongst these people. So, so if that's what we want, what is our game plan? What is our role in building a community for which the only explanation is that God is amongst them? A community that won't be possible if he isn't. That's what this book is about. It just turns to the scriptures and lays out a clear and helpful vision for a community that puts everything on what God says he will bless. And we want to make it as easy as possible for all of you to engage with us in this. So starting this week, not only do we have a bunch of these hard copies out here, on the, you probably passed them on your way in here. We'd love for you to grab one if you don't have one. We've also, through the great generosity of the publisher and the authors of this book, made available PDF copies for you. We'd be happy to email to you. And starting this week, uh, Pastor Jonathan Worsley is going to be reading this to you for those of you who prefer to consume your books that way, there's not an audio book available of this. And the publisher said, by all means, go ahead, read it, put it out on your podcast. We'd love for you guys to consume it that way. So we're gonna give it to you that way. So on, in our church's podcast, you'll find each week the chapter of the week. And, and on our website, you'll see uh, a, a, a nice launching pad for the, that'll include the schedule uh, overall and then links to the resources that you'll need. We really, really hope that you'll be able to join us in reading this book. And we know it'll bear fruit if you do. One reason I wanted to take a moment to talk about the book this morning is is that besides the fact that this is an important moment in our church's life, and besides the fact that we're going to start this study this week, the topic of this book and our motive behind reading it together as a congregation is actually directly connected to the subject of Paul's prayer here in Philippians chapter 1. I mentioned a moment ago that in these few verses here in chapter 1, we get... A window into what Paul prays for his friends. In just a few short verses, he tells us exactly what he wants for this church through his prayer. I want to read these verses for you now, and then I'm going to tell you exactly how we're going to break them down as a window into what what, what we should be praying for our congregation as we move into this new season together. The first thing I wanna do is read these verses for you. And I'm gonna ask you to please, if you're able, stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Philippians chapter one and verse nine. And it is my prayer, Paul writes, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Did you notice that this, this whole prayer, the, all three of these verses, is just one long sentence? I mean, it's a choppy sentence. It's the kind of sentence, again, that, you know, a high school grammar teacher would probably send back to you and ask you to divide up a little bit. Uh, but, it, but it's all just one sentence and, and all just about one subject. The first phrase gives it to us. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Every other phrase in this long sentence is just adding some texture to that basic prayer. And at the very end of it, he gives us the point. I pray that your love will abound more and more. Skip ahead to the very end to the glory and praise of God. What, what Paul's saying here through this prayer is that what he wants is a community of love that brings glory to God. And every little phrase in this long sentence is just filling in more texture for what kind of love brings glory to God. You think about that, that, that first line I pray that your love may abound. Think of that as like the first pencil-only sketch that an artist might make before putting the time and effort into painting a full portrait. You know, Often that's what an artist will do. They'll just sketch it out first. Let's get it down. The whole thing is there, but then they come back over it with different colors and textures to fill it in. That's, that's essentially how this prayer works. It's one big prayer. I pray that you will love one another to the glory and praise of God. But then every phrase adds more detail, more texture. And what we want to do this morning is look at every layer of this texture together. What kind of love brings glory to God? That's what we want to be praying for our church. And that's what I want us to see from this portrait this morning. What sort of love brings glory to God? That's the question. And I want to show you four answers, four dimensions, four layers to this God-glorifying love that Paul prays for and that all of us should pray for as well. Here's number one, abounding love. What sort of love brings glory to God? Abounding love, That's, that's the beginning of verse nine. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. There's the baseline, there's the key request. See, they already love one another, he knows that, He's grateful for that, he assumes that that's true, but he wants a multiplying love, he wants more love. He wants a love that won't run into a wall someday or into some sort of boundary that'll cut off the supply. And it's not hard to imagine why he would ask for that. I mean, sometimes love comes pretty easy at first or from a distance. You know, when you're just first getting to know somebody, when you don't see them very often. You know, like, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think that cityscapes are just beautiful to sit back from a hill and look out at a city, especially at night with all the lights. It's just gorgeous. But you know how cities are. You get down there and there's a lot of exhaust. There are dumpsters everywhere. A lot of times trash in the streets and just kind of indiscriminate goo that runs into little troughs and into the sewers. Up close, cities don't always look so pretty as they do from a distance. And unfortunately, like that could be true of at least some of us, some of the time, am I right? or easier to love from a distance. Once you get up close, once you start to see the details, if you stick around long enough, you go deep enough, sooner or later, you're not gonna see eye to eye with somebody or someone's not gonna follow through on something they said they would do. Or maybe they'll stand against you and what you want. Or maybe they'll ask more of you than you want to give them. Sooner or later in any relationship, The honeymoon phase wears off and you'll see everything, not just the good parts. And what happens then? Often that's where love runs out. Often that's where love just hits a wall and bounces off. Often that's where the stream turns into a trickle and then dries up. And Paul, in his baseline prayer for this congregation, is asking the Lord to give them a love that won't dry up. He wants a love that's more like the Mississippi River. I read somewhere that something like more than 50%, something like 60% of the rivers and streams in the United States flow into that one river. By the time that thing hits New Orleans, it's, it's wider than you could swim. It's massive. It's abounding. It's ever-flowing. And that's the kind of love that he's praying for. A love that's uncontainable and boundless and steadfast. In other words, friends, when he prays for a love that abounds more and more, he's praying that they will love one another the way God has loved them. Remember the end game here, the glory and praise of God. That's what he wants. And there is no higher form of flattery than imitation. And one of the key parts of the Old Testament where we learn who God is and what he's like In the story, uh, soon after Israel has been led out of Egypt, Moses, a key leader for Israel at that time, cries out to God and begs him, I want to see your glory. Show me what you're like. And God agrees. I'll show you what I can show you. So I won't kill you. I won't show you all of it. But I'll show you what I can show you. And the Lord passes by Moses who can see barely a glimpse of the shining glory that that it belongs to the Lord and his holiness. Though he's only able to see just so much, what he hears matters just as much. The Lord speaks to him in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord defines his glory for him in Exodus 34. And this is what he says in a phrase that'll be repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God's glory shows up in his abounding love for sinners. And this abounding love is our goal for our church too. Friends, we already love one another. I love seeing evidence of it all over our life together i've never been a part of a church with a more obvious and beautiful love among the members and and that's something i can speak to both from from my own experience of of trinity church and then from from the knowledge i'm gaining of our our friends from edgefield baptist who who we now joined to become one church beautiful evidence of love all over the lives uh, of these two congregations and now our one congregation i mean just this week i was talking to our sister lynn green uh, who's grieving the loss of her husband Bobby, and she told me uh, as we were swapping texts back and forth that, that she'd been getting notes of encouragement and support from a bunch of you folks that she hasn't even met yet. How beautiful is that? We talked about the fact that, that when you share Jesus in common, you don't have to even know one another to truly love one another. Nothing has been more rewarding to me as a pastor uh, with with the privilege I have of, of a better-than-usual bird's-eye view of what's going on in the life of our church, nothing has, nothing has been more rewarding to me than seeing the way you guys pursue one another in love. You do. The way you pray and support one another and show up, the ways you put yourselves out for the needs of your friends. We already are a community of love by God's grace, but we're going to need more. We're going to need a love that abounds because we're not... We're not always gonna love one another well. We're gonna wear on each other in ways large and small. Sometimes we're gonna offend one another. Sometimes we'll overlook one another or disagree with one another or disappoint one another. And when we do, when we're tempted to turn off the tap and save that love for someone else, maybe somebody more deserving, that that very moment, we'll be faced with a precious opportunity to bring glory and praise to God. At that very moment, friends, we'll have our opportunity to bring glory and praise to God. There's your core prayer for Edgefield Church. Every day, friends, pray that we will be a church that abounds in love. Of course, we're gonna pray for provision. God tells us to, it's good to pray for that. We're gonna pray for healing when we get sick. We're gonna pray for comfort when we're grieving. We're gonna pray for these things. Of course we will. But if you boil it down to the essential everyday prayer we have to offer for our church, it's this one. Pray that your love will abound more and more. Because right here, friends, right here, this is where God gets glory from our life together. What Paul has more to say about this love. The kind of love that brings glory to God is an abounding love, just like his. That's who he is, but there's more. There's another layer that Paul gives to us in what comes next in verse nine. Not just an abounding love, we're gonna need a discerning love. Look back with me at the passage. He prays that your love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Here's another layer. Here's a little bit more color and texture filled into the sketch he's already given us. This is the kind of love he hopes will abound. A love marked with knowledge and discernment so you prove what's excellent. Here's what I think he's talking about. I think he's praying that, that our love for one another will aim one another at what is excellent and away from what isn't. That our love pushes the one we love in a certain direction. I wonder if that fits how you think about love. My sense is mostly these days when we talk about love, what what we have in mind is is an affirmation of something or someone. When I say that I love smoked brisket, as I do, in case you're wondering what to get your pastor for Christmas, uh, uh, when I say I love smoked brisket, what I mean is it's delicious. I mean, who doesn't love it? It's delicious. It smells good. It's actually pretty fun to cook when you try it. There's a lot of qualities that smoked brisket has that draw me into it. I'm pulled in its direction because of the way that I experience its goodness. That's partly what we mean when we say we love something. And that's that's part of what love is. It always involves saying yes to something good. But biblical love goes another step further. Biblical love has more depth than this. Yes, it involves affirming something that's wonderful. I love the way that light looks when it comes through those beautiful stained glass windows. I'm affirming something wonderful about it. That's part of it. But biblical love also involves seeking what's best for the one you love. That's gonna always mean saying yes to some things and no to other things. That's gonna mean using discernment to approve what is excellent. See, see, See friends, a love that stops short of that kind of discernment, a love that only ever says, you're awesome. That kind of love Ultimately, it's just boiled down to sentimentality. It's a statement about what I feel. I feel good when I engage you. And and it may seem more loving to us at one level to stop there, to just say to someone, you're great, you do you. But from Paul's perspective, that's really just more like apathy. That's basically indifference. That's saying, you know, it just doesn't matter to me that much what becomes of you and your life. And a love that brings God glory doesn't have indifference like that as an option. It's invested just as he has invested himself in us. I mean, imagine you have a friend who maybe takes their first trip down to the Gulf Coast to the beach, realizes how amazing it is that it's like the best beaches you can find anywhere and decides to invest everything he's got in a small plot of beachfront property. Let's say he spends all his money just on buying the lot. He doesn't really have much more to work with, but he's, you know, he's like a minimalist sort of guy anyway. He doesn't need a whole lot. He doesn't need a fancy big beach house. So goes on Craigslist and, and finds himself an old beat up mobile home and decides, I'm just gonna pop this bad boy down here on my little space of paradise. Let's imagine you've got a friend who makes that call. What does love look like here? Well, sure, you might say, hey buddy, great idea, investing in beachfront property, that's always a wise investment. There's never gonna be a time when someone doesn't want that, way to go. You might compliment him on his minimalism. Hey, so cool that you don't need that much you know, to be happy and comfortable. You might compliment him on the beachy paint color that he chooses for the walls. You might genuinely wish him well and hope that he thoroughly enjoys this little slice of heaven he's built for himself. But if you stop there, have you really loved him? Of course you haven't loved him. Not if, you, not if your love is matched with knowledge and discernment. None of you know. We get hurricanes down there. You know when those hurricanes come, the wind is really strong. They don't blow that thing into the next state. When the hurricanes roll in, there's a storm surge. You have to build your houses up on those stilts. You can't just have a, a trailer sitting next to the water. if you know what he's choosing is just not good for him, then saying nothing but congratulations is not loving. At best, that's just indifference. At worst, friends, it's self-serving. It's self-protection. It's trying to dodge a difficult conversation. And ultimately it's just easier to let somebody do what they want than to take an active interest in helping them approve what's excellent. But the loving thing, The loving thing is always to use knowledge and discernment to help your friend approve what's excellent, to take a personal stake in their life and what becomes of them. Now, that's going to require something more of you. That's a costlier form of love to give and to receive. But that's what love is, and that's the kind of love that brings God's glory. If we love one another, we're going to take an interest in each other's lives. We're going to take up the difficult but more beautiful work of helping one another approve what's excellent. And that's the kind of love we should join Paul in praying for here. This raises a question. A question about love that Paul's next phrase helps us to answer. How do we know what's excellent? If if true love, a love that abounds, helps us to move towards what's excellent, to say yes to good things and, and no to things that aren't, how do we know what's excellent? What's our standard? What are we trying to help each other move toward? What's our goal for our friendships? And that's the third layer to this portrait of God-glorifying love Paul prays for us right here. You'll find it back in verse 10. It's a holy love. Not just an abounding love, not even just a discerning love, but a holy love. Look at verse 10. He prays that they'll approve what is excellent, that their love will move them towards approving what's excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's the target. Our goal for one another is lives that reflect his holiness, inside, pure, and outside, blameless. Lives that are lived with him is our main target as if he is the audience that matters most. That's what Paul's doing by pointing us forward to the day of Christ. He's imagining a day that the scriptures often talk about, a day at the end of time, when all of us who have lived will stand before the one who made us and give an account for the things that we've done. That's a day of healing, when everything broken and spoiled by sin and selfishness, everything marred by sorrow and death, will be restored. It's a day of reckoning, when all the injustice committed by the powerful against the weak will be judged for what it is once and for all. And for Christians, it's also a day of celebration. For those who are waiting for Christ in faith, it's pictured as as a huge wedding feast where we finally get what we've been longing for. And for Christians, everything we do now, every choice we make, every step of every day, we take in light of that day. Because we love him, what matters most to us is that we please him. What he wants for us is what we want for us. And love between Christians is always going to mean seeking what he wants in our lives. See, if you take God completely out of the picture, if you don't assume your lives now are lived with then in view, if you take him out of the picture, then as long as we assume we're not gonna harm anybody else along the way, it will make sense for us to just aim our lives at what we want from them, at what we believe would make us happy. That'll be the main standard. If he's not there, like we get to be the standard for what's good in our lives. And all things being equal, you just simply ask, what do you want from life? That's what defines what'll be excellent. And then love for others is just gonna mean helping them towards what they want from life, doing what we can to enable what they believe would be good for them. But that view of love only works if God's not in the picture, friends. If he's not the one who made us, if he's not the source of all goodness and truth and beauty in the world, if he hasn't actually told us what's good for us and what's pleasing to him, then by all means, go and do what you want. But if he is there, If he has spoken to us to tell us who he is and what is good before him. If our highest calling is to live before him in a way that pleases him, well, then he is the one who defines what's excellent. And the most loving thing you could possibly do for somebody else is to help them live a life that pleases him. Friends, our covenant with one another as members of this church, is really our attempt to put on paper what we believe the Bible tells us about the love that moves us towards his holiness. He's spoken to us. He's told us what that looks like. This covenant just takes what he's told us and puts it down in a series of promises that orients our life together, that shapes our friendships with one another. Here's how we'll love one another in this direction towards him so that he is pleased with our lives. And he gets glory from this because what we're saying is he matters most. He is worthy of our obedience and our greatest desire is to please him. And there's one more thing I wanna say to you as we close. One more layer, one more shade of color in this portrait Paul's been praying into existence for us. The final phrase in this long sentence comes in verse 11. He's praying that they will have a love that will lead them to approve what's excellent so they'll be holy for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. There is so much hope, so much confidence built into that phrase. Because up until now, we've been, we've been putting in front of ourselves a, a, a target that we're gonna aim at, that we're gonna work towards, that we're gonna pray for and then, and then leverage our lives uh, for. We've been talking about what's, what we're called to so far. But but Paul never, ever, ever leaves us there. Here at the end of the prayer, he takes us to the only reason we should have hope that we'll actually get where we wanna go. He takes us to what he is doing in us, not to what we're called to do for him, but what he is doing in us to give us the ability to do what he asks us to do. He takes us to Jesus. Did you notice he's picturing here your your, your life as a kind of fruit bearing plant? And what he's praying for, this love that abounds, that's the fruit. He wants your life to be like an apple tree with abounding love as the, as the apples that are just all over it. But where do those apples come from? Where's the organic life that gives them th- their existence? It's through Jesus Christ, he says, verse 11. He wants you to have fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. It's his grace and power at work in you that produces the kind of love that brings God glory. That's amazing. That's amazing. Think with me about this, about what this means. It's not like Christ just sits back waiting and watching to see how we're going to do with this picture of love that Paul's painted for us. As if he just painted it for us and said, now go, do that. Let's see how you do. No, he's at work in us. He's in us even now bringing out the kind of fruit he calls us to produce. In other words, he's the source of the holiness that he wants for us. Listen listen to what Paul says in another letter. Ephesians chapter five, about what Jesus is up to right now in the life of his church and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Ephesians chapter five, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Does that sound familiar? Our love is aiming at our holiness, but Jesus is already at work aiming at exactly the same thing. Ultimately, whether we become pure and blameless like he's praying for is not gonna depend on us and whether we get the job done. But it's going to depend on the one who is already at work in us and never ever fails to accomplish what he sets out to do he's the real power behind this work we do in each other's lives he just uses us to get it done a while back my youngest son was on a real driving kick every time i would get home from work in the evenings he would rush out to meet me, climb up into my lap and ask if we could drive down the basically unused alley behind our street. He wanted to control the vehicle. Don't judge me. It's a really quiet, peaceful alley. So we do it. You know, We just go back and forth, back and forth, dodging, you know, dodging the, the, the trash cans that are everywhere along the, along the alleyway. And in a sense, he was really driving. I mean, he had a role to play. He had his hands on the wheel and he was affecting the, the, the movement of the car, but come on. He's in my lap. My hands are also on the wheel. I know exactly where we're going. I'm aiming us in the right direction. I'm going to make sure we get there safely. Jesus is driving his people, his church, towards a goal, a destination. He's already told us we're going to be pure and blameless before him. But along the way, just because he's gracious, he gives us a role to play. He lets us sit there with our hands on the wheel and through our love for one another, we become his delivery system for his power and grace at work in us. Our love gets each other there but because he's already taking us there. And that takes all the pressure off of us and gives us a guarantee that when we spend ourselves for one another, it will not be wasted. This gives us confidence and it gives him glory because one day we will all know that we are his handiwork. I wanna stop now and pray this prayer for us and ask you to do the same this week and every week before we sing one final song together. Father, we know that this beautiful picture of a community that's loving is more than we will have the ability to produce. We want so badly to to have this as our experience, to love each other well and to honor you in it. And we know that if if it's up to us, it won't happen. And so we thank you for reminding us that this fruit comes through Jesus, that he's at work now doing what he's already said he would do. And we thank you for the chance to be his delivery system for love and grace and power at work in our lives. Help us. Help us to, to not only pray, but to work towards this kind of community that'll bring you glory. And we pray that you would do it for your name's sake. Amen.